Hi there, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Jean McCarthy. I write a blog about my experiences of life after alcohol called Unpickled, recapping the ups and downs of sobriety over the past eight years since my very first day of sobriety. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. Today, we meet a woman with 109 days, by my calculations, just over 100 days of sobriety as of this recording, who never imagined that she would be able to quit drinking, let alone talk about her alcohol use and the reasons for it here on a podcast. People-pleasing and perfectionism are common precursors for maladaptive coping skills, including alcohol use disorder. Now, imagine how those presets would be exacerbated by being a media personality. Our guest today is Virginia, a former news anchor and TV host who is learning a lot about herself as she clears alcohol out of her life and starts to focus on healing herself from the inside out. Virginia, welcome to the Bubble Hour. Thank you. I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm glad that you are willing to do this and that um it's really helpful to hear from people who are really in those uh, early stages of it. I mean, you have a significant amount of time under your belt, but you're at, at 3 months, you know, the life lessons and new experiences can come pretty fast and furious. So, it's really, you know, helpful to hear kind of what it's like for you right at this stage. So, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you. I know all about the power of these stories because the bubble hour is honestly how I got through it. I mean, I'm talking binge listening nonstop in the first couple of months. <laughs> Some days I would listen to four episodes because you just you need it. You just need to hear that other people get it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other voices can be so helpful. And mm-hmm. um um, did you before I want to get into hearing your story, but just as you're talking about what you know listening to several episodes at once what what was it about that that what what kept you coming back for more like what was really working for you in listening to those podcasts? It didn't matter who the person was, their age, their sex, or their drinking history. There was always something I could identify with always, and on the days that I really wanted to drink, I would specifically look for episodes that talked about relapse because I wanted to hear why I was going to regret it. Um, and I mean, there are so many crazy little factoids that, I'm, that I can identify with. One of them was a man who was in his 60s. And I remember he said he knew it was a problem when he would have to rewatch episodes of Breaking Bad because he couldn't remember. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding me right now? Because I was binge watching Breaking Bad, same thing. I watch before my husband and I watch the next episode because I couldn't remember them. Like little things like that, like just always made me feel like I wasn't alone. Wow, that's amazing. I I, I find it funny how you know for me I really thought nobody could possibly understand what it was like to be me and what I was going through and I felt I was you know very very special and unique and it was just such an eye opener to hear aspects of my own experiences coming out of one person after another, you know, the more I listen to other people in recovery and it taught me a lot about myself. So I'm glad to hear that, that that's been helpful for you as well. Well, tell us about yourself. Yeah. Let's get to know you a little bit. Okay. Well, I'm 44 and a half. Um, I'm a mom and a wife. Um, I have one little boy. He's eight years old. And like you said, I'm a former TV news anchor and host and I live in the St. Louis area, but I'm originally from Alabama, and I had a pretty normal childhood up until the age of about 13. Um, I'm the oldest. I have a younger brother and a younger sister, 
but when I was 13, that was the that was the age I was when my dad had his first episode of mania and depression, and that really threw the whole family into a tailspin. And I didn't realize it until many many years later, but that's when all the bad coping behaviors began. And for me, it started off as binge eating. Um, I drank for the first time and got drunk when I was 14, but the eating really started when I was 13. Um, and it just got worse and worse as I got older. But, um, when I drank, which wasn't a lot in high school, it was, it was on the weekends that I always got drunk. I cannot remember any time where I just drank for the taste of alcohol. Like that, that makes no sense to me to this day. Um, but the eating was, was bad. I was really obsessed with how many calories I consumed and that determined how many miles I ran each day. So I was also addicted to exercise. Um, I was very driven by goals. still am to this day. Um, and I, I look back and I realized that a lot of that was because of the craziness going on in our family. I felt like if I could perform, if I could get those straight A's that, you know, I was, I was doing what I was supposed to do. Um, and that, that went on for a very long time. In fact, it was listening to you talk about, um, you know, you're being a perfectionist and an overachiever when I realized, oh, this, this all plays into each other. Um, but I guess it was probably late into high school when I started to drink more frequently. Um, but again, it was always partying. I never thought necessarily that I had a drinking problem because I I went to a private Christian school. I was raised in a Christian family. And so a lot of my guilt over drinking, I always just assumed it was because I was a Christian. I wasn't supposed to be drinking. It wasn't necessarily that I had a problem. Um, but with that said, I felt like everybody in our little Christian, you know, community had perfect families and perfect lives. And, you know, most of these kids came from a lot of money. And so I always felt like I was just trying to make sure that nobody knew our family's deep secret, which was that we had mental illness in our family. And the more my dad went through an episode of mania and depression, the worse it got. Um, looking back, I, I think my sister and my brother probably had it worse in, you know, when they were in high school than I did just because he continued to get worse. Um, but I was not diagnosed with depression. However, when I look back, I realized that I clearly was depressed. Um, I think I thought it was just me being an emotional teenager. But when I look back, there was there was definitely depression going on. The isolation, you know, was definitely present, especially with the binge eating. No one knew about my binge eating disorder except my little sister, who also was a binge eater. And, and quite frankly, we would binge together as we got older, um, which is really sick to think about. But that's that was our family. We didn't really know how to deal with feelings. My mom was just trying to keep the family together and she was not a real nurturing person. I mean, she definitely, you know, she was the breadwinner at that point because she had to be. She was a disciplinarian. Um, she was just doing everything in her power to, to keep the family together. And we were just, I guess, trying to figure out why we were feeling the things that we did and, and the shame that we did. Um, so I left um, Alabama in 1998 to pursue my career in television. And my first job was in Missoula, Montana. I never really traveled as a child, so I thought moving out to Montana was going to be glamorous. I mean, hello, Brad Pitt was in A River Runs Through It, so surely he was going to be there or someone who looked like him. Um, and I remember being really excited because I started to lose weight. I, did, I wasn't really overweight because I exercised so much, but I was heavy. 
And I was getting heavier because right up until I left for my first job on TV, I was drinking a lot and eating a lot. And so I totally um, weighed my most then. But I remember dropping weight because I was so um, stressed out at work trying to meet deadlines, being in television in your first TV job, you often do it all. So you shoot, you write, you edit, you're doing everything. Um, but the weight quickly caught back up because that stress um, led me to eat. And so the binge eating continued, and I was drinking more. Um, my second job was in Spokane, Washington, and that's when the binge eating really started to scare me. Um, again, I was drinking on the weekends, but, but the eating was my main addiction. And, and I didn't really think I had a drinking problem, probably because my eating addiction was so much bigger. Um, I remember being upset after a date and my, my boyfriend had dropped me off and I felt like, you know, he was mad at me and I knew he was going to break up with me. And so I remember, um, walking into my apartment and all I had to eat was a box of pancake mix. And so I cooked those pancakes, not even completely, and I ate them, the entire box. And my stomach expanded so much that I remember laying on my couch and just thinking my stomach's going to rip open because my, it, it just, those pancakes had expanded and my, my stomach was so bloated. And I just remember thinking, you've got a definite problem. And the whole next day I didn't eat, and I felt disgusting, like I'd just eaten a huge Thanksgiving meal. I remember being on a live shot that night at 6 o'clock, still feeling like I'd just eaten. And that was about the time that I decided to go to counseling for the first time. And I only went, I think, to one session. But I remember all he could really say was that it sounds like you have an all-or-nothing personality um, and that you really think in black-and-white terms, would this be true? And I said yes. And I didn't really think it was that helpful, so I didn't go back. Um, but fast forward – my career took me to St. Louis in 2003, and my eating got worse, um, and, and I started to drink even more, um, and I won't go through all those details, but I did finally go to counseling. I'd gotten married, and I gotten divorced, and the marriage didn't last very long, and it was, it was in the counseling that I realized that I had been depressed all these years, and I started to journal. I even started blogging. And that was really helpful. And, and I blogged um, on the station's website, and I was shocked at how many people could relate to not only my depression but also my binge eating disorder. And so that really helped me a lot. But I remember in the, the darkest days of the binge eating, waking up, um, and I was on the morning show. I was a reporter and, and news anchor on the morning show. So I would get up at like 1.15 in the morning. But I remember I would wake up um, and just some immediate thought was, what did you eat the day before? And then I recalled what I ate. And then I remember just saying, you're disgusting. How could you ever do that? Why, why would you think that anybody would, you know, think that you could even be on television? And, and anyway, I, I say all that because fast forward, in my um, throes of my drinking addiction, that same voice came back. And, and I'll talk more about that in a little bit. But it just, I, I think in a way it saved me because I realized where this was all going. Um, but during the divorce, I started to drink on my own, like by myself, uh, for the very first time. And I just chalked it up to the fact that I was going through a divorce and this is what people do. And I continued to go through counseling and um, I, I got the eating addiction under control. And I guess about a year and a half or so um, after my divorce, I started dating someone else. Um, well, I dated a lot of people, but this happened to be the person who I ended up marrying. 
um, there's an addiction to a lot of um, just dysfunctional relationships too that went with all that. But um, as I was dating my now husband, my now second husband, um, I remember just so worried that I was going to go back to the eating. And I even remember when, when I moved in with him, um, I would have him hide any kind of sugar we had in the house. We even called them trunk cookies. So he, if he, he loves these cookies from Sam's, and so he would throw them in his trunk when he had to leave because I was afraid <laughs> I would binge eat. So I was always making sure that, like, I never went back to that. That was my biggest fear that I was going to go back to that. Um, and, you know, I, I binge drank, which with the people I hung out with, it didn't seem like it was that unusual. Um, but it was after I had my son in 2010 um, when I remember, and I was never a wine drinker, really, or at least I can't remember being a wine drinker. But when my son was born, it was in October. My husband went on his annual hunting trip in November, and I remember buying a, um, a bottle of wine, which I, apparently I'd been drinking wine because I wouldn't have just done that. But And that was the first time I drank wine by myself, and, you know, and I was a new mom, so I was, you know, I was basically pumping and dumping when I would when I would drink because it was the first time I did it, and I remember thinking, well, that's not so bad. I mean, I deserve to have a glass of wine after you know a busy day by myself with the infant. And looking back, I probably would drink maybe two glasses of wine a night, but over the years that increased. Um, a year after I had my son, we had a miscarriage. And that was really devastating. It would be the first of probably 10 miscarriages looking back. Um, And I I started to wonder because my drinking had increased and I start and I was still blogging. And I even remember someone reminded me of a blog entry um, from back in those days of me questioning me in my blog, my public blog. I questioned, did I trade in one addiction for another? And I don't know how much I was drinking back then. I know it wasn't how much I was drinking three months ago when I quit, but, um, but clearly it was, it was quite frequent. Um, and, but again, it was, it was accepted. It was normalized to drink, especially wine these days. And so, and I always had friends who drank. I mean, I didn't hang out with people who didn't drink, so I never felt like I was that unusual. Um, but it, it began, you know, to become every single night, seven days a week. And, and I loved it. I looked forward to it. And it didn't matter what happened during the day. I knew I was going to have my happy hour at the end of the day. And so I could turn any day into a Friday night. And my husband never really said anything about it. And, and keep in mind, I was a very busy person. I always have been addicted to busy, which is something I didn't realize until the drinking uh, when, I, when I decided to tackle that. But um, I decided that I – I couldn't handle the, the stress of the, the schedule. I'd also picked up a, um, a radio gig. So I was getting, even though I had um, eventually moved off the morning show and I was, I was not having to get up quite as early, I picked up a radio gig that I could actually um, record from home in my closet. And I was just a news reader. So I was still getting up at about 3 a.m. And then, you know, producing that little newscast, recording those, then going in to my regular job. And I, I really didn't want to do this crazy schedule anymore. So I talked to my husband, who's a business owner, and he said, well, we really, we really can't afford to, you know, lose your income. So I decided I'm going to replace my income. So now I'm doing a radio gig, a full-time job. I have, I've got a now two-year-old at the time, 
and I've decided I'm going to start my own business and replace my income. This is what I'm doing all the time. I'm like working nonstop. And of course I deserve to drink at the end of the day. (laughs) And so that's what I did. And eventually I did replace my income, but of, Along the way, I decided, you know what I really want to do? I want to launch a nonprofit faith-based TV show because I would really like to help other people out there who are struggling and feel like they're all by themselves, know that they're not alone. Now, I wasn't thinking about drinking at the time. I was thinking about my eating addiction that I had overcome. So I'm thinking if people, you know, if they are able to hear other people's stories and know that they're not alone, they'll be able to use what, you know, these people have learned through their struggles to help them overcome their own, you know, situation. And so that was my next big goal. So not only did I have to replace my income, but I had to make enough so I could somehow support this nonprofit TV show I dreamt up. Um, and so that's what I did. Uh, in 2016, we launched this faith-based TV show. But here's what's really interesting. I got the idea for this TV show on the way to work. This is before I was able to quit my job um, because I heard another local TV personality sharing his story of alcoholism and recovery on the radio. I did not think, oh, my goodness, I have a drinking problem, too, even though I did. I thought, oh, my goodness, who would have thought this guy would have had an eating – or, I'm sorry, a drinking problem? And, again, this just reinforces why there should be a TV show, you know, to help people feel like they're not alone. And he is my co-host of this TV show. And denial is a crazy thing because in 2016 when we had launched this show, um, I was drinking crazy at night. And then during the day, I was, you know, helping produce and and host this nonprofit faith-based TV show. Um, And then it was about, I guess it was a a little over a year ago. So this would be the end of 2017. I had run myself so ragged that I felt like I was on the brink of a mental breakdown. And I, at the time, was now drinking at the end of last year, 2017, about a bottle and a half of wine a night. And... All this time, I had not shared this with my co-host because I certainly didn't want him to know that I had a drinking problem, although I come very close to telling him I need to be taken off this TV show, I have a drinking problem, but I just I felt like I was living a double life. I was you know, supposed to be this great Christian woman on this crusade to help all these people, and then I'm a lush, you know, getting drunk at night by myself in my, my living room, and so finally, I told him, not about the drinking, I told him I needed to be taken off the show. So this was at the end of last year, and it was because the anxiety was too much. I, I couldn't take it anymore. And I knew, I thought in my head, if I just cleared off my schedule, if I just managed my life, that I could moderate my drinking. I really thought this. Um, and so I actually quit drinking for a whopping two weeks. Um, I went to AA, and very quickly realized that, well, I clearly don't have a drinking problem because these people have it way worse than me. They'd lost jobs. They were, you know, drinking until the bars were closed and and they had gotten DUIs, lost their families. I'd done none of this. I didn't have a drinking problem. So um, two weeks after I quit, I started drinking, thinking I could moderate. And that only lasted about a week. I was right back to seven days a week. Um, I'd left the TV show. So all of 2018, I had a reduced schedule, and I will say that I was already on a journey to help myself, um, I, I guess, give myself grace. So I, I was 
saying no more often. I was being more protective of my yeses, and I was trying to make my family more of a priority and, and start to take care, better care, I should say, of myself. Um, and I didn't see my failure to quit drinking as a failure. In fact, somebody said, let's don't think of failures as failures, but a fumble. I heard that today. I'm like, that's exactly what it was. Because I, I still picked up the ball and kept running. I knew in the back of my head that I was going to have to quit drinking one day, that it just didn't work at that time. But I will say, backing up to when I first, well, that was my first big attempt at quitting drinking, I remember um, waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning and going on those sober searches, as you call them, looking for people. And, and I found a blogger who's no longer blogged anymore, and I found her on Facebook, and I reached out to her. Um, and then I, I reached out to another woman I didn't know very well, but I knew she had recently quit drinking because she posted about it on Facebook. And they were the ones who encouraged me to go to AA. And, um, and then after it didn't work, I, I just didn't talk to them anymore. But um, I, I just I knew that it was going to – I knew I had a problem. I just didn't know what to call it because I didn't feel like I was an alcoholic since I didn't meet the criteria of those who were in these, these AA meetings. Um, and so the drinking increased to about two bottles a night. Um, and so it was in October of, of 2018, I, um, I was at a leadership retreat, and the woman who was leading it asked us to kind of freestyle write. This is the part where I always cry. Um, if, if we could do anything, if we had a magic wand, and we could do anything, and we knew we wouldn't fail, what would it be? And I remember writing down, but it's so funny that I, I say this, that I would be, um, I, I would help women overcome anxiety and addiction. And then I just remember, and I, and I started crying right then. I remember thinking, and, and it was almost as if I could, in my mind, I could hear God say, I want to use you to be able to do, to do that, but I can't do that until you quit drinking. And I knew that day, that was in mid-October, that it was, it was time. No, I didn't, I didn't stop drinking that very day. But a couple weeks later, um, I'm a big Alabama football fan. Um, we were watching an Alabama game, an Alabama LSU game. And, um, and it was just my husband and, and myself. And, and I remember thinking or, or just paying attention to the amount that he was drinking. And it was actually it was around the same time as the year before when I quit. Same reason, because I could drink circles around him. He's such a normie. It's disgusting. I, was, I drank a bottle of red wine in like five beers during this LSU Alabama game this past year. And he drank, I think, two beers. It was just, you know, there's time on the clock. There's one other person. It's just so obvious that you just can't stop. And, and so this time around, I didn't plan on not on like that being the last day, but the next day woke up at 3 a.m. And it was that same voice scene that I used to get when I was binge eating. And I remember hearing it, and this is not the first time that this is happening, I mean, on a nightly basis. I would hear that voice, why did you do it again? Why do you think that, you know, you're any better than anybody else? You're disgusting. You have no self-discipline. And if, if people only really knew who you were. And, and I was just like, that's it. And I remember I started messaging the very same women that I messaged a year before, and I said, I'm, I'm back, and this is happening. This is really happening this time. But I just knew I – and nothing against AA. I think it was just that particular um, – group that I went to just um I just don't it was not a good fit and so I 
I knew that where I lived, I live in a, a rural area. I was going to have to drive quite a ways for me to find one that that made me feel comfortable. And and I just I didn't have I didn't want to make that 45 minute drive each way. And so I said, there's got to be there's got to be a better way. And and so I started just googling nonstop, looking for just for bloggers and books. And the first book I came across was A Happier Hour. And I, I loved that book because she seemed to have the same struggles, wondering, you know, where she fit in this whole alcohol abuse world. And she decided to commit to a 90-day challenge. And I'm like, okay, that's what I'm going to do too. And the other thing that she decided to do was not to look at what she was losing or giving up on, but what she was gaining by quitting drinking. And so I immediately I got a, a fresh journal out and I started to just write all the things that I, I wanted to do and, and you know, how, who I wanted to become and, and be a better mom. And I mean, I, I got very specific. And, and so I focused on what I wasn't going to do, but what I was going to do by being able to quit drinking. And I told myself, it's just 90 days. Like if you can do 90 days, great. And if you're good after that, that's fine. Um, but then I just became obsessed with reading. And I think I've read every single memoir out there. I'm reading dry right now and I'm kind of sad because I feel like it, it might be the last one about <laughs> Uh, about drinking, but I, I um, read This Naked Mind. I read Blackout, Drunk Mommy, Drink, Wasted. Um, I really liked The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, Drinking a Love Story, Between Breaths, which I really liked because it was Elizabeth Vargas, who's also you know a television personality. Um, I just read everything I could get my hands on, and then The Bubble Hour. I found The Bubble Hour very quickly um, because I had just really started listening to podcasts before I stopped drinking, and I thought, well, there's got to be a podcast about not drinking. There's got to be. And once I discovered the bubble hour, I mean, it was like it, it was every single day. It was kind of I had a ritual. And it was, I, I knew if I just did these things that it would be easier. And so it was to read every single night um, and, and then to listen to at least one episode of the bubble hour a day. And in the very beginning, the first few days, I was like, this isn't that hard. Like, what's, what's all the talk about? And then the anxiety hit, and it was really bad. I'm talking panic attack um, on the – and I didn't have really panic attacks, but I did with this in the first couple weeks. Um, and I, I like to tell people that it's like you're thawing out, and it's a really watery, messy process because there's a lot of crying involved, <laughs> and there's a lot of um, – <laughs> there's a lot of feelings that you just have to sit with and like stare down sometimes. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, lots of arguing with my husband um, because I was extremely irritable, but also I realized that I was drinking off a lot. I was drinking off every little thing that irritated me during the day. Every person who you know, stepped on my feelings that I tossed aside. Um, as my mom says, you really just, it's time to stop being a doormat, Virginia. And that's what was happening. Except I couldn't drink it off at the end of the day, so I had to confront it. I had to face it straight on. So my husband is having to get used to me, like, actually voicing my opinion when I don't <laughs> agree with him instead of me compromising and letting him get his way because I hate confrontation. Um, but that's been, it's been very good for us. Um, and I, I had to find ways to give myself grace, and, and, and I mean that by um, – I always like projects. I always like to create things. And in fact, before I quit drinking, I was listening to podcasts because I'm like, I'm going, I, I thought I'm going to start a podcast. I have no idea what it's going to be about, but that would be fun. Um, and, and even when I decided to stop drinking, I'm like, I'm going to have a podcast about not drinking. This is before I found yours. 
And then I'm like, wait, why do you have to do that? Why, why can't you just take care of yourself and stop proving to people that you're a somebody? Because that's honestly what I've done since I was 13. You know, if my family is going to be the family that's tainted by mental illness, then I've got to somehow prove that I'm worth something because I, I clearly don't have that perfect family. So, you know, if I could just be on TV, maybe I'll find self-worth. And, and so I find myself in that trap to this day. Like, I mean, shoot, Jean, I shared with you before we came on that when I heard that you usually require people to have at least 90 days of sobriety before you'll interview them, I was like, well, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get sober for at least 90 days so I can message Jean. <laughs> anyway, but I have to I have to catch myself when I'm trying to do things that aren't necessary um, because I – I would rather work on these little projects than work on myself. And so what I had to do is, like, look at myself as the next project. I took myself – well, first I outed myself on social media. I knew I had to do something extreme to hold myself accountable. So I believe it was on day five or day six. Um, I came out on Instagram because I didn't have a lot of of followers on Instagram. I was mostly a Facebook person. And my family wasn't on Instagram, so I was like, okay, I can come out on Instagram. And at least my story will be out there. And then I won't lie to my Instagram followers. Then I knew I would never lie, and so that would hold me accountable. And i got to tell you, in my first 60 days, I mean, there were days where it was, it was just the thought of me having to tell everybody on Instagram that I relapsed that kept me from drinking. Um, I went home to Alabama shortly after Christmas, and um, – my mom had, not on purpose, but she happened to have two bottles of red wine that I drank at the house, and every and, and because it, nothing catastrophic happened, but it was family. I mean, all the stuff that, you know, happens um, or, or that I would grew up with that caused me to want to eat or drink, that stuff was still happening, and um, I wasn't really ready for it. I mean, I was only just over a month in when I went home, maybe a month and a half, and I remember... I was listening to a lot of bubble hour in Alabama and, but every day I was telling myself, okay, Virginia, you can drink both bottles of wine tomorrow as long as you don't drink today. And I would tell myself that and I would convince myself that yes, you are allowed to drink those, those bottles of wine tomorrow as long as you don't drink today. (laughs) And then of course the next day I did the same thing and I did not drink in Alabama. Um, But I also didn't want to tell the Instagram people that I drank. So, but then eventually I, I kind of, um, stopped posting on Instagram because again, I felt like that was just another way of me, you know, trying to prove myself and trying to seek approval. And so I've, I've taken myself off of social media. I'm probably going to come back soon. I think people think I've died. Um, but, but I just had to really reevaluate everything in my life and, and really decide what was most important. And my little boy who's eight years old, he doesn't understand. Like I, I never got, you know, wasted in front of him or I was never an angry drunk. I will say I started to break rules, though, in the last year. Like, one of my personal rules was I would never drink – I would never drive my son around under the influence. Um, not that I drove drunk a lot, but um, I'm just saying, like, for sure I would never, you know, drink and drive with him in the car. And then I found myself on several occasions last year taking him to the movies, sometimes matinees, and I would go to the little theater bar and get a double Chardonnay. It was like an adult sippy cup. I had a lid on it with a straw and I would order him, you know, food and then I would sit there and drink Chardonnay while we watched 
you know, the kid movie. I mean, it's awful. But those little signs were, again, alerting me to, yeah, you've got, you definitely have a problem and it's only getting worse. Um, but it's so funny because he doesn't know anything other than I quit drinking. I told him I needed to lose weight and it wasn't healthy for me. I think he knows more than I think he does because every once in a while, it's very random, but it usually is when we're having some kind of mommy and me, you know, together time. Out of nowhere, he'll just say, mommy, what day is this? How many days has it been since you stopped drinking wine? And so I know it's important to him. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 for those who are listening, because I know in my first 60 days it was so, so hard, um, there will be a day where you do not think about drinking. I promise. Um, I told somebody the other day that I, when I first stopped drinking, I started shopping at a different grocery store because I just, it was just, it was too soon. It's like this terrible bad breakup and you just don't want to see them. And so I would go to, I would drive out of my way to a completely different um, grocery store to get groceries because I just couldn't handle, you know, the thought of seeing my wine and us not being together. And so even at that new grocery store, I would literally hold my breath and walk like really fast past the alcohol aisle because I just couldn't be trusted. And it, it was, it was too much. But the other day, I found myself at my original grocery store, and I, I had no intention of doing this when I went into the store, but I was about to walk by the alcohol aisle, and I'm like, I am going to stare that witch down. We're going to see what happens. And so I went down the aisle, and I found my wine, and it was really funny because it was completely stock, the shelf was, and normally it wasn't. I swear, it was a really cheap wine. I won't even say what it is because it's so embarrassing, but um, <laughs> it was completely stock this time because I really think I was the only one that was drinking it. But I looked at it, and it did nothing for me. I was like, it was such a huge day. But then, so that was about a week or so ago, yesterday I'm at Target, like not thinking about wine at all, and I turn a corner, and on the end cap, there's some special on a Chardonnay I like, and that that hurt my heart a little bit because it was just like, oh, we can't be together. And I almost wanted, I mean, I, I kind of teared up. And then later I was like, wait, I don't care. Like, I don't need you. It's been, you know. Right, today is 109. Um, it's, been, it's been over 100 days, and I've been just fine. In fact, I'm better than fine. So I, I think you really have to give your, your brain enough time to rewire itself and give yourself enough positive experiences so that you, you prove to yourself you don't need it. And I don't have those 3 a.m. wake-up calls anymore, you know, with that awful voice telling me how disgusting I am anymore. Um, I sleep through the night. I've read more in the last three months than I have in probably five or six years. Um, I've done a lot to my house, going back to projects. Um, I'm a little OCD, and so I've thrown myself into DIY and remodeling our house. But it's, it, it's filled me up. It brings me joy. It's fun. I'm kind of sad. I'm sitting in the room that is the last room of the house, and it's pretty much done. And I'm like, okay, now you have to step out into the real world. This is kind of like my personal rehab, I think. It was yeah. like my home rehab, but it was also my personal rehab for my alcohol addiction. You know, you know at the end of a cartoon or of the old movies how the the screen like narrows down to like a little circle in the middle? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like like it'll go down to a little focus in the middle and then like Bugs Bunny would pop out and say like that's all yeah, folks. Yeah. And I almost feel like that's kind of what happens in a way when we get sober is like we make our world really small for a while and we're the only ones in it and we just look after ourselves. And that might be 
a couple of days and it might be a couple of months and then and then once we're like physically okay and through those first shaky days or weeks then it's like the circle gets a little bit bigger and you can start to talk to your spouse about it or maybe your friends and then it gets a little bit bigger and you're like okay I'm going to renovate my house then it gets a little bit bigger okay I'm going to like bake cookies for my neighbors and and like (laughs) it's all you know not only like I think that happens almost with every big life change like I felt like that happened with every one of my kids when they were born that Mm -hmm. like the world just like zoop down to our little family you know and like that's the only thing in the world that mattered was was our little household you know and then I started to let the world back in bit by bit but it sounds like that's exactly where you're at, where you're ready to. And I'm so glad you said that going. because I've felt a lot of guilt over that. I feel like I've disappointed people. Or, you know, I say no to just about everything. Um, but I've been very selfish with my time um, and with, like I said, my yeses, especially. I mean, I, was, I quit drinking right before the holidays, so I didn't go to any holiday parties. I, I sent my husband by himself because I'm like, I, I looked at my sobriety as this little fragile, uh, one of those what are those fancy eggs called? The oh, Fabergé eggs. The yes, Fabergé yes, eggs. Yes. yes, that's what that's what my sobriety was, and nobody could break it. Like they couldn't take it out of my hand. And so asking me to go <laughs> hang out with a bunch of drunks over the holidays, yes, that was going to break my sobriety, and it was. So I I had to get selfish. Um, but I, I will I will say I felt I felt guilty because of that. Yeah, and I don't think you should feel guilty. I don't think it's selfish. I don't think that's the right word. But I do think as women in particular and men that are listening, let me know if I'm if I'm leaving you out, if you feel this too. But, uh, you know, my experience is that women are really programmed to be givers and to be, you know, put ourselves last. Like they literally have to tell us on an airplane to put our own oxygen mask on first mm-hmm. because <laughs> none of us, I, I, you know, every time I hear that I'm like, Duh, like that is just uh, such an eye-opening thought, you know, like no no woman on instinct would put her own mask on first. I mean, it's just not how, it might be how we're wired, but it's not how we're taught. And um, and we need, you know, this is what recovery is, is like getting rid of all those old ways of thinking that we're never right to begin with. And um, and giving ourselves better ways of thinking and and coping and um, I made a lot of notes while you were talking. Mm-hmm. I have lots of questions for you. Um, when you went to when you talked to a therapist and have you gone have you done any counseling you know in the last three months have you been working with a counselor at all through this I, time I did, um, but not not consistently. Um, I, I need to go back. Um, and that's actually one thing that I, I didn't mention. I brought up my drinking to my OBGYN more than once. And, and I've heard more of your guests say this, and I w- I'm shocked by the fact that they were not alarmed by what I told them. And I didn't sugarcoat it. I mean, the last time I told my OBGYN, you know, I was concerned about my weight gain, and I think it's because I'm drinking more than a bottle of wine a night, and he said, mm, no. I think it's because you're 44 and that's just what happens. And I even um, at one point asked him if he thought my miscarriages had something to do with my drinking. And he laughed at me and basically said that um, I can't tell you how many people are coming in here because they drink and they, they're getting pregnant. So I really doubt that that's your problem. Um, wow. So, yeah. And, yeah. And even my, my therapist, um, she never – 
she never was concerned about my drinking. Now, I'm not saying I, I was sitting there telling her I was drinking two bottles of wine a night, but um, I just think she thought I was stressed out and carrying a lot of responsibility, and that's how I was checking out at night. But she didn't sound like she thought it was a problem. I wonder sometimes about doctors and if we have any medical professionals that are listening, I'd love for you to write to me and let me know your perspective on this. But my doctor, like I didn't tell him how much I was drinking, but after I quit drinking, I told him. And he was like, oh, well, you know, maybe someday, you know, you probably can moderate again. Or, you know, some people find that they need to quit for a while and then they can drink normally. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Wow. I couldn't, and he's a really good doctor. Like he, I really love my doctor, and I was quite surprised. But I think sometimes that, um, like, they're almost afraid to make that diagnosis. Like it is quite a muddy area. And at the same time, I wonder sometimes if other doctors are a little bit resentful of this, this um, disease that people self-diagnose and self-treat, and you know, they're, they're and self-treat through abstinence and meetings, like it is sort of outside of their purview in a, in a way. Um, and I don't know how they feel about that. I don't know if they just feel like, you know, there's, I don't know, so it's sort of like nutrition. They don't have a ton of knowledge about nutrition necessarily. So I don't know. I, I, I think we need to do better there. Um, but therapy is so has been so helpful for me that, I always encourage everybody to go. Like I can't think of a single person who wouldn't benefit in some way from going, and especially for you with the enormous amount of grief that must have come with multiple miscarriages and then the codependence that would, and I'm not a therapist, of course, I'm not even trying to play one, but just from what you've said, like just from what I wrote down, like having a parent with a mental illness, I mean, every book I've read on codependence will tell you that, you know, our childhood experiences, having someone in the household with mental illness is a perfect breeding ground for a child to grow up with codependence because they have to always like their their needs are never able to be put first. The crisis comes first, right? And mm-hmm. and I can just everything you said seems to play that out forward. So that's why I asked about about um, what you're getting for support because of the enormous amount of grief and um, and that sort of loss of childhood that you ex- would have experienced by having a parent with the mental illness. And I also wanted to ask, how's your dad now and how's your relationship with your dad? How did how's things unfold for him? Well, my dad, I mean, it got worse, I guess, before it got better, if you can say that. He doesn't have the anger um, and and the crazy mania, which is the worst. I mean, I don't, he'll never be the same. I tell people, or I've described it often as um, every episode that he had, it was like it, it took a little piece of his personality away. Um, mm-hmm. But we're good. I mean, I just, he's very, he's a very gentle version of himself now. Um, you know, he, he can't work. He's, he doesn't get out much, but, um, and, and it's still something that, that I work on. Um, but I'm, I'm I, I still adore him. I do. Um, and I've forgiven him for a lot. So, but it's still there. Yeah. We were that's, really close. Really that's a close. really hard 
thing, like the unfairness of it, of of it not being his choice. But um, I was talking to someone recently about how, you know, it's really easy to be very sympathetic to someone with a mental illness when you don't live with their mental illness yourself because, I mean, it, it's hard, right? And it's hurtful and it's it's unpleasant sometimes. And I think we all want to be the kind of people that could be patient and compassionate and understanding and, and helpful to someone who's not well. But the reality of it is that it is really hard and then you feel like a terrible person for admitting mm-hmm. that. And yeah. um so I really feel for you. That's a that's a huge burden to carry. And do you have any fear for yourself? Like, is there any part of you that that fears, you know, that just knowing that that can happen to someone and seeing the effects of it? Like, do you have fear for your own wellness at all? Did you go through that at some stage? Um, yes and no. I think my my siblings may have a bigger fear. Um, I mean, I've just heard them say that. I've been. I mean, I've been diagnosed with depression. I'm on. You know antidepressants um i don't i mean i don't fear being manic if that's what you mean um i mean i'm ocd and (laughs) and i will accomplish i mean i will not quit until something is finished um but no i don't i don't fear being like i mean i'm 44 so i feel like i would have already seen that um Uh if it was there but the depression is definitely all three of us all three children have some form of depression um, and, and I'm very proactive about it. So I, when I went to counseling the, like the first time and it really stuck, the counseling did, we, most of it was about my father. And so that's when I learned about setting boundaries and that was so helpful. So, um, and, and he's, like I said, he's, he's different than he was when it was at its worst. So, but I guess I just didn't realize, I, I remember when I first put it all together about the eating that, oh, my eating disorder flared up for the first time when my dad was diagnosed. It only took me 20 years to figure that out. But um, same thing, though. It's like I'm such a slow learner. I look back, and I'm like, all I did was transfer one coping mechanism for another. Um, And it's just that I made my life even more hectic and filled it full of more things and more people to have to drink off. It was, you know, Uh it was no longer my father I was having to drink off or hide. It was, you know, all my other pieces of shame, whether it's me not being enough or um, letting people hurt my feelings and not standing up for myself. I've never heard that it described quite that way of drinking it off, but that's such a good term because, it, yeah, I, I can really relate to that term. And even the idea of just being addicted to busyness, um, for me, like, I can really relate to that. As you were talking, I'm like, oh, my goodness, how did this woman do it all? But, you know, I I know that I did my own version of the same thing, and it really was I was just trying to outrun myself. I just never wanted to slow down, and, like, I wanted to fall asleep a second before my head hit the pillow because I mm-hmm. didn't want to have to be alone with my thoughts and, and face my thoughts because as soon as I was alone, that voice flared up and... So I want to talk. I want to. I want to talk a little bit more about that voice. You know, the the critical voice, but also, it's also to me the voice of addiction. Like, do you identify it as your addiction talking to you, 
or like how do you see that voice now and how do you how do you handle it like have you stared down the voice the way you stared down that chardonnay <laughs> in the grocery store well i remember so i have a blog and i remember one of my blog entries was um i almost i i really identified chardonnay because that was my drink of choice um as just like this evil bitch like she just would not she did not want me to be happy she was you know she just convinced me that I was that she was the only way I was ever going to be happy or that I was ever going to be likable or funny or attractive um and so at the in the beginning stages I had to see it that way like it was just this another bad boyfriend or you know toxic relationship um and now I I love the book This Naked Mind I also listen to her podcast that's really helped me to see that you know really understand the brain and how it works and how alcohol can warp your perception. So I see that as a Christian though, I also see it as the enemy trying to, you know, lure me over to the dark side. Um, and he loves to have us in isolation and, and have us all alone so he can feed us all these lies. Um, and I even think my relationship with God, um, was also based on approval. It's like, okay, well, I can't really pray because I'm drinking so much. Why would God even want to talk to me right now? So as soon as I get my drinking under control, then we can start talking again, God. I mean, so so I guess I have multiple personalities in my head when you, when I think about the voice. Um, mm-hmm, but I, I do mm-hmm. I definitely think it's the addiction talking for sure. Um, like like at Target yesterday when I saw the Chardonnay and I I you know teared up a little bit. I later recognized that as the addiction. That was just my brain remembering that addiction part, thinking, oh, we're supposed to have that, but I don't need that. But then I had to remember, oh, but we don't need that anymore. So I definitely had to look at it, though, as a, as a separate party in the beginning, um, just so that I could see that it wasn't me, you know, that, it, that I wasn't the problem, that it was something that I had introduced that had warped my brain to make me think I needed this. Yeah. And that those things were never true, right? Like, I right. it really was an epiphany to me to learn that, like, I just thought that they were a core truth, that I, like, really was a bad person. or And, you know, like, the thing is that, like, that isn't, there is no measure for that. Like, there, the, that's not even a possibility. Like, nobody is worthless, nobody's useless, or we wouldn't be here. <laughs> like, we're just. Like you were the best little swimmer sperm. Like you got here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you were definitely supposed to be here, or you wouldn't be here. And so that whole idea, of like um, earning our space, like hustling for our worthiness, as Brene Brown says, or or just mm-hmm. trying to earn our space, it's just so. It's such a trap because it's completely illogical. So you cannot win that argument with yourself. You know, you can't. You you have to completely free yourself of that kind of thinking because there's no winning in that way of thinking. I mean, the, like the closest you can come to winning is to start thinking of yourself as being superior, and that's not good either, right? Right, right, <laughs> right. Well, and I, you know, I have this little um, group of friends. I call them my drinking buddies, even though I don't think I've drank with any, but maybe two of them. But we're all on our different journeys trying to quit drinking and we're in a little book club and today we met we meet once a week on a video conference and and we were talking about when we were trying to quit and it didn't work and I and I just have to remind myself that we're right where we're supposed to be you know and and God's using all of this you know like maybe I didn't quit a year ago but I learned a lot up until then and and maybe I'm able to help you know people I wouldn't have been able to help a year ago had I been it would you know had it stuck um so I have to always 
again, give myself grace and just say, you're right where you're supposed to be. This is where you're supposed to be on your journey. Um, and I tell them all the time, cause you know, I have more days under my belt than some of them. And I just say, but you're still on the journey. Like we're just, maybe you fumbled, but pick up the ball and keep running. Um, yeah, exactly. And the other thing I find scary. amazing is how, like, when you're talking to other people in recovery or that are working on different aspects of their life, is how, um, like, we're all learning the different lessons at different paces. And, mm-hmm. like, I really, I, when I, I go to a lot of retreats, and, and so I don't see the same people at every retreat, but I usually see a few of the, like, every retreat I usually see some of the same people you know <laughs> there's a few people I see you know every once in a while and after a few years I've seen them all kind of thing but we're every time we get back together um we're all in a different place like wherever you're at today and if I if so let's say you know when you're with your family and you're like oh that person is always such a downer oh that person is like <laughs> stuck in their whatever habits and but when you're with the, your people, and that's not right to do that either, but we we pigeonhole people. But you know mm-hmm. that when you're with people in recovery that they are working actively on their stuff. So even if you notice of like, oh, I'm hearing some X, Y, Z, or I can tell she's really struggling with that, you know darn well that that's not a permanent state, like that their their whole life is in flux and moving forward. And it's such an amazing thing. And it's so inspiring to be around. I mean, it keeps all of us thinking like, yep, I'm not staying here. I'm going to just keep moving forward. Well, yeah, and have you have you found that you're more compassionate for people, even if they're not people who are struggling with drinking? Um, I think because I have my little drinking buddies, as I call them, you know, they know that we can we can always share our thoughts and, and whether we drink or not, and we're not going to judge. Like it's just uh-huh. it's common knowledge and it's a safe place, and I've kind of let that transfer into other relationships and and I'm, I don't take things as personally anymore I don't think yeah. that they're, they're you know addressing me necessarily but maybe they've got their own stuff going on maybe it's not drinking but it's something else and I'm able to find compassion whereas I I took everything so personally before totally yeah I I really think that's true Virginia and I I feel like um not only um, am I like I'm? I'm so compassionate. It actually surprises me, and not even in a way where I feel like, oh, that person's going through something. I should hold their hand, and help. you know, I don't even. I just kind of, I just feel for them. I think like, oh, maybe if someone is being rude in a store or something, you know, being really abrupt with a an attendant in a store. Like whereas I used to just think like, what an awful person, you know. Right, and, right. And then I would be super nice after them to sort of compensate for it, which was totally passive aggressive on my part and also fed into that like need to be liked and look how much nicer than them that I am. Now, like I can stay neutral and think, wow, that person is I can hear anxiety or something, you know, like something's mm-hmm. going on for them and they're 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 feeling bad like and and it's coming off of them and sticking on to other people and and so I might I might try to smooth over the situation for the other people's sake but not manipulate it for my own if that makes sense and I didn't know I was doing that and until I stopped doing it and it just feels so much better to even just to have that response of rather than being like kind of snarky and judgmental just to be compassionate feels so much better um i feel like it could change our world if everyone was a little nicer and more thoughtful oh, yeah. of each other 
my co-host, because um, he's helped me so much, the one that, you know, is, is a recovered alcoholic. And I've told him, I'm like, I think every, everyone should be in recovery. Everyone should be in recovery. <laughs> because yeah. maybe it's not, and, and I know that's, um, that's what She Recovers is all about, but it, maybe it's not drinking, but we're all recovering from something. And, and if people could just see that they've left their, their younger selves behind, and they just need to go find them again. I mean, and there was a really harsh reality that came with this gene where I decided I had no clue who I was. I mean, I it was a very scary lost feeling when I just, yeah. I'm here in my house all by myself because I choose to be, and I've got to figure out who the hell I am because I'm 44 and I have no idea who she is. That is a scary thing. and I like, But I also feel like your life kind of got put on pause when you were 13 and mm-hmm. and you know crisis hit your home and i don't know i um for me i mean i also feel like that was the age where i just started hiding myself in different ways like with makeup and with, mm-hmm. with boisterousness and like that's to me recovery is all about getting back to that 12 13 year old girl and and getting to know her again and I oftentimes tell people when they write to me and say, like, I'm on my first day of recovery and I'm really scared, and I'll just say, like, pretend that your 12-year-old self is coming for a sleepover and go to the store and get whatever snacks she'd like, like, get a bunch of things that are age-appropriate for someone her age. And even though, like, I was drinking at 13, um, I wouldn't say, like, oh, well, 13-year-old me drank, so I'm going to go get booze. No, it was like, I'm I'm an adult looking after 13-year-old me. What would I like and what would I want? And then just... Like, the more time that you try to spend with that person, who you are, like, the more you do start to realize, oh, I like um, real crime shows, or <laughs> I like not wearing makeup, or, you know, like, it, it's such a revelation, and it's actually really quite fun um, yeah. to to find that out about yourself. Um, okay, I have a few more questions for you. Sorry, I'm getting sidetracked in talking about my own thoughts. Um, I feel no, like you I and I are it. We're so much alike that um, I feel like you're you're talking about me sometimes. I want to talk a little bit, two things. We're running out of time, so there's two things I want to hit on before you, we go. You talked a little bit about your experience of going to AA and how that voice in your head sort of used that experience to actually perpetuate your addiction because it said, you're not like these people, you're different. Um, Knowing now, now that you're in a different place and you're you're stronger than that voice, if you think back to those meetings, even though maybe that wasn't the best choice of meetings for you, um, and they're all different, by the way, people, if you're if you're thinking about going to a meeting and you've gone to one and it isn't for you, they are all different. So try another one is is the typical advice that people say. But if you think back to that meeting now, like, is there some things that you think, you know? Actually, I, c- I can kind of relate to what that person said. Like, are you? Do you find that that in retrospect, there probably was more similarities than you would allow yourself to believe? Or how do you look back on that now? I yes. So I actually have. There is another meeting that I went to this time around that is the forty-five minute drive, and that one was amazing. It was really good. It's just it. I didn't need it. It's, I, I felt like I, I did my patchwork and I, I figured out something that didn't require me to drive. Um, but absolutely, I can identify with people from the first meeting I went to. It just happened to be that they were much older. Um, and, and when I look at the, the continuum of, of, you know, alcohol abuse, I could see where I could have gotten to where they are. Um, 
yeah, so I definitely could identify, and I think that I, I probably, I could see myself losing my family had I continued to drink and dismiss them. Um, it's just at the time, it was almost like I was looking for an excuse not to identify uh-huh. with them. Because totally. I, even though I wanted to quit, I really didn't want to quit. But that's why this next, this time around, stuck because I was done. I, I just couldn't, I couldn't hear that voice of shame anymore. So it really speaks to the um, the importance of willingness, right? Like you just weren't quite there yet before right. of being completely willing. And um, But I'm glad I went because I was yeah. much more reluctant to go. A friend of mine had invited me to a different meeting, and I probably would have said no had I not gone before because at least I knew, you know, I knew how it, how the order of the meeting went and what to expect. And, you know, if, if somebody wanted to go to an AA meeting with me today, I'd it wouldn't be a problem at all. Um, it's so scary the first time, though. I mean, especially when you're not really sure what's going on, and you know, and, and they want you to say that you're an alcoholic. It was a closed meeting, so you know, when I said I was, <laughs> I think I said this didn't go off well. I go, I'm really just here for observation and research. <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, oh, all up in arms because it was a closed meeting, and you know. I was acting like an investigative reporter. <laughs> so, <laughs> I kind of did they recognize you as being a TV person? Um, they did, because I went a few times. They, they didn't the first couple meetings, you know, different people come in and out uh, as you go. So I think the third or fourth meeting, some people recognized me. And I was okay with it because it was Alcoholics Anonymous. They weren't supposed to be telling people I was there. But <laughs> Okay, yeah. that is so cool that you had that attitude because – I and I and you know I live in a, a smaller city and as a business owner and I was on TV a lot and in the media a lot that was part of my job and then I actually did host a little TV segment that went for quite a few years so I felt like I was too well known to walk into an AA meeting and to me that was my that was that was a fear that my addiction leveraged to keep me drinking and um so, and, and I hear it from a lot of people, like, well, I can't because I'm a teacher and I live in a small town. And like, if people see me going into an AA meeting, they won't let me be a teacher anymore. You know, like, the, or I'm a pastor or I'm a doctor or I'm a mom. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody has a reason why they don't want to walk in that room. So it's really cool, actually, that you you were brave enough to do that. Um, that's awesome. And I, I'm glad. Thank you for for um, going back and revisiting that topic with me because I, I kind of had a feeling that you'd circled back around and um, and learned a little bit more about it, and I was I was curious as to how you looked back on that. The other thing I want to ask you about is, is just the words imposter syndrome and, and what that means to you, how it felt to be caught in imposter syndrome versus now how, you know, you're, you've, you've added yourself, you've sort of taken charge of that by not only um, – living a life that you feel more authentic and, and truly is yours, but also like not feeling like you have to hide your problems and talking about them openly. So can you talk a little bit about imposter syndrome and being on both sides of it? Yes. Yeah, so I, I thought that I had conquered that when I came out with my binge eating disorder, but little did I know that was just, you know, that was just getting ready for the big game. Um, and it's so freeing to be able to say, this is who I am, and I'm not pretending to be perfect anymore. I will say, and this is just where I am right now, public speaking scares 
the bejesus out of me. But for whatever reason, I keep setting myself up for it. And so today, um, I, I was I'm, I'm speaking at a conference this weekend, and I'm, I'm so nervous. And I, I always ask myself, why do you do this to yourself? And I almost get annoyed because it's like, okay, now that I've I've told everybody that I've got all these these problems and I'm willing to talk about them, now everybody wants me to talk about them. Like it's so easy for me. But I think it's again just. Um, <laughs> I think, I think it's again, it's just God's way of using me to to help people out there who who feel like they're they're all alone. Um, and one of my biggest, my and it's, it's why I, I love our nonprofit TV show. I do believe that everybody's story is their biggest gift that they could ever have. But sometimes we have to identify that story in the first place. And I thought I knew my story. Um, maybe I did. I knew part of my story. Now I'm owning all of my story, and it is the most liberating feeling ever. Um, I, I think where, what I meant by that was um, I don't have all the answers. I think I get, I feel pressure to like solve everybody's problems by sharing my story. Like I, I'm going to tell you exactly what to do to get over the problem, but really everybody, it, it's all, it's different for everybody. You know, some people, AA is perfect for them. Some people, you know, um, like me listening to the bubble hour and reading tons of books and having my little drinking buddy, you know, video group. Um, that's enough for me, but it's different for everybody. So, so it's freeing at the same, it's freeing for sure, you know, to be able to have my insides match my outsides, as you, as you often say. Um, but I think it's when I get overwhelmed and I think, oh, now everybody thinks that you're the end all be all. You've got all the answers to help them, which is ridiculous for me to even think that, but that's when I kind of start to trap myself. Mm-hmm. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? I can see that, and I. But I. I think what we have to remind ourselves at that point, because I. I can get that way too. Uh, I've had to work at, oh, at not imagine. letting myself. Yeah, because the, the 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 fact is that, like, having all the answers would be really annoying anyway, because yeah, the the true. the experience is if someone like the answers don't help you if you're not ready to discover them for yourself, right? Like if if 10 True. years ago someone had just said to you like, oh, well, you just need to tell the voice X, Y, Z, and you need to stop drinking, and you need to blah, blah, blah. Like that's all well and good to say that, but until you're ready and you figure that out for yourself, and like there's, I don't know, there's like it's not helpful to have all the answers. What's helpful is, to tell your story and share a picture of where you're at today and what you've learned so far and how you've learned it and how it felt. And then as someone else applies that to their life, just in hearing that without without including any of the answers, you know. Just... Well, it's so true because I feel like you are so knowledgeable and you know so much. But really yeah. I think, and you do, but I think that most of what I've gained from listening to you is because I can identify. Maybe not everybody can yeah. identify with so much of your story, but I can, and that's that's so helpful. And I'm I'm learning through um, listening to how you you've learned through things, you know, or you've worked through things, and and the lessons that you found in them. So it wasn't because you knew everything; it's just because you're willing to get vulnerable and and be transparent and share. Right, and then you have that like, oh, you have that aha moment of, oh, that, like sometimes another person will put words to a feeling you've had that you couldn't express. And then those words, it's like it's a little key and it unlocks the next room and then Mm -hmm. you can go in there and work on that. And that's, oh, I have goosebumps just thinking about it. That is the magic. That 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 is why addiction wants us to isolate. That's why we end up alone, drinking alone, mm-hmm. because that's that's how 
that's how addiction holds its power on people is by isolating them. And, you know, there was that, that kind of viral video about, like, um, connection is the cure. And, I, well, uh, to me, like, stopping drinking is the cure. <laughs> but yeah. connection is the continuity because it keeps you moving forward. Like, first you have to get sobriety. You have to stop drinking. But if you're going to recover, you've, you really, really benefit from connecting with other people and hearing their stories. Absolutely. So, hey, there's well, one person. So I've listened to, I swear I've heard every single bubble hour, but there's one in particular that, I mean, I, I even blogged after I listened to it, and it was it was the emails from Charles, which is not his real name. But do you remember Charles and reading that yeah. one? I don't know how long ago that was. There it was wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, there's just something about his story and, just, and, and how you were able to basically sum up that he was a functioning, you know, or that he – he meets the criteria of a functioning alcoholic. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm so Charles. Like, I am so Charles. Like, why didn't I figure that out last year? If I'd have heard that podcast <laughs> last year, I probably would have stayed stopped. <laughs> but anyway, I hope he's doing well. I, I know you say hi to him. He's listen. Listen. So, hey, Charles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not his real name, but he knows who he is. So, hi, yes. Charles. We're, you're still helping people. And, I still uh, link to his, to his podcast to a lot of people, so. That's so cool. Well, we have rounded out our time and gone a little bit over, but I'm really, really grateful to you. Um, Is there anything you want to share with others um, before we go? Any kind of last thoughts or um, any, like, do you want to share your podcast or Instagram, or sorry, your blog or Instagram, or do you want to keep those anonymous for now? Um, If you find me on Instagram, you'll find my, my blog, and it's this is Virginia Kerr, K-E-R-R. That's my Instagram handle. This is Virginia Kerr. And then I have my, um, my blog, which is this is Virginia Kerr blog.com. Um, the link is in the bio. Um, and I guess, you know what, I have a lot of people write me when, when they've, you know, heard my story and they're wondering if they have a drinking problem. And all I, I just always advise people, just look into it. I, I do recommend that they read this naked mind just to educate themselves on what alcohol can do to the mind. Um, it's a very personal decision, but I definitely would encourage people to explore it. If they're, if they're having those thoughts, they should definitely at least do some research. Thank you so much for your time today. I've, I've really enjoyed getting to know you and I, I really too. appreciate Thank your you. openness and willingness. Thank you so much. So um, listeners, if you want to write to Virginia, you can find her through her blog. As she said, this is Virginia Kerr at .com, correct, Virginia? This is VirginiaKerrBlog.com. Blog.com. And, uh, or you can write to Virginia through me, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I will forward your message on to her as well. That's another way. And, um, yeah, you'll find me at unpickledblog.com. And I guess we have, you know, shared everything we know on this snowy winter day. Um, that's all we've got for you. So thanks for listening, everyone. And until next time, take good care. Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back A little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free from power Weakness head on me In a dark corner is where shame lies behind 
person you should talk to is looking at you in there. And the one who 